Bible reading is from Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16, and can be found on page 1002 in the Bibles in the church pews. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And then the disciples saw it. They were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray together. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm aware I've now made a rod for my back with talk about emotion and application before I get up to preach. That was probably... So if I don't, if I don't cry and blubber and tell you all the horrible things in my life and then and very specific, you're going to say fraud. Um, so moving overseas, one of the things that, that we have realized is, I ask the question right now a lot of times, well, what's this worth? I have to figure out what all these things that we've accumulated over these last eight years is worth. Partly because, so if it's going in the container and shipping home to the States, well, uh, we have to fill out kind of an insurance valuation so that if the, the, it gets stormy and they decide to chuck our container off the side of the ship, um, that we can claim back uh, the replacement value of all of our things. So I've had to ask, what's that worth? The stuff that we're not taking with us, either we're giving away or some stuff we've been selling secondhand. And so I have to say, well, what's this worth, i.e., how much can I get out of it without feeling like I'm bleeding my friends and being kind of, you know, um, as it were, a bit chintzy. So I've been mulling this kind of what's this worth question over quite a bit. Was that another one of those words you don't use? <laughs> no. Okay. Eight years, I still speak American. What do you know? Um, 
I'm not going to slip as many Americanisms into this sermon as possible. Um, so what's it worth? So I brought a few things along to, as it were, help us think through. Because some things, I think it's pretty straightforward. You can put a, a price tag on it and say, well, that's worth X amount. Uh, for some things, it's a little harder. And that matters because of context or a particular person or uh, there are different factors that may go into it. So, for example, first of all, um, I brought, I didn't, I said not to bring our car itself in here, but I've got my car key. Uh, we, 2003 Toyota Avensis Verso Seat 7, we're selling it, 3,000 pounds, 83,000 miles on it. Um, but that's one of those things, if you're interested to see me afterwards, uh, that's one of those things that it's pretty straightforward. You know how much a car is worth because you can look and you, you look on the website Auto Trader and you can price it on the blue book and you know, right, for a car with this mileage, this make, this condition, this is the amount I can expect to get for it. What a car is worth, that's straightforward. What about other things? So I've got a glass of water here. What's this worth? Well, in one sense, not much. I walked down uh, stairs and filled it out of the tap and you think, you know, that's pretty cheap. That's not worth much. But what about a different context? What if you had crawled across the desert for the last three days without anything to drink, and you come to me, and I'm standing here with this glass of water, and I ask you, well, what's this worth to you? Well, then at that point, it's worth quite a lot. So the context sometimes matters when we ask the question of what's it worth. And sometimes there's a sense of, well, it's, it's actually particular. So I've got a picture here. Yep, there you go. Uh, this is our eldest Jack when he was about three months old. And this, he's with Aaron's uh, grandmother there. And uh, what's this worth? Well, you know, the picture, what, 20p to print it? You know, it's not worth that much in one sense. But a year or so after this, uh, Aaron's grandma died. And so this is, the, you know, of our kids, Jack's the only one that she got to meet. So there's no chance that we'll ever have to do another picture like that. So what's that worth? Well, it's almost inestimable in that regard because it's irreplaceable. It's the only chance that we have. So the question of what's it worth? Well, it, you know, it depends sometimes. And yet sometimes it doesn't depend. Sometimes you can say, no, this is worth something, but there may be a gap in terms of how easily we recognize what it's truly worth. So there was an experiment a couple years ago there as Many of you will know this name. Uh, I'm a cultural Philistine, so it was uh, new to me. But there's a, a violinist uh, called Joshua Bell. And uh, evidently world-class, you know, at the very top of, of his profession. And in Washington, D.C., a couple years ago, they did an experiment. And they had uh, Joshua Bell come and bring his violin with him. And one morning during the rush hour in the subway station, he sat there and, and busked for about 45 minutes, played his violin. And, and not kind of easy tunes, but he played like some of the really complicated, emotionally expressive, powerful music, uh, Bach and, and other pieces. And so the question is, well, what's that worth? Well, on the one hand, you could say, well, pretty straightforwardly, you've got a 45-minute concert that, in one sense, you could stand two feet away from him, and the concert he had done just before that, I think normal tickets had been about $100 a piece, He's playing uh, not just any violin, he was playing a Stradivarius that he had bought for $3.5 million a year or two before that. A uh, violin that he, that he always plays, takes it with him everywhere. So you've got a world-class violinist playing a 3.5 million Stradivarius, all right, and you can just stand there. And so how much is that worth? 
Well, to the thousand people, more than thousand people that walked by during that, it was worth $32. That's how much he made. And in one sense, you think, well, $32, 45 minutes of work, that's not actually that bad. Um, but you're talking somebody who is probably the very best in the entire world at what he does, and most everybody simply walked on by. One person out of those recognized him for, for who he was, recognized him as Joshua Bell. One or two people stopped and recognized the quality of the music, even if they didn't know who it was that was playing it. Most everybody kind of just simply went on. Eh, there's good reasons for that. You're not expecting exactly to see something like that as you walk through the subway station on your way to work that morning. But there's a sense in which you could say, actually, objectively, how much that's worth. It's worth a lot. But that's a gap then for what people actually recognize for what it's worth. And I wonder if sometimes that's, that kind of, that's the, the dilemma, the problem that faces us, is that perhaps there are things in our life or people in our lives and what they're worth and what we've actually recognized in terms of their worth, well, those don't exactly match up. And perhaps you can think of relationships, maybe not that you've had, but that you know of, of parent-child or husband-wife or friendships where one person is not saying what that other person is worth like they should, and there's a real sense of heartache and destruction that can come out of that. And so it's that question of what's it worth, specifically what's Jesus worth, that we're looking at this morning in these verses in Matthew 26. Because the different characters have wildly divergent answers to the question of what's Jesus worth. So let's start with the Jewish leaders. Pick it up in verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So what is Jesus worth to these leaders, to the religious leaders of the nation of Israel? And the answer is nothing. Jesus isn't worth anything. I mean, in one sense, he's worth something because, well, they want to get rid of him. But he's not worth anything in the sense of what he's teaching and who he is and how they should relate to him. They don't want to have anything to do with him. You see, they're scared because of what Jesus represents. Jesus has swept into the city of Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, popular acclaim. He's gone into the temple, and he's caused a huge commotion by clearing it out, this symbolic action condemning the leadership. And then as they've tried to challenge and publicly humiliate them, each time he's gotten the best of them. And the Jewish leaders under the Roman authorities are charged with keeping public order. And so to them, Jesus represents a significant threat to that. A popular charismatic preacher like that could really cause and foment unrest and even rebellion if he wanted to. And so to them, Jesus is a threat to be eliminated. Because he's a threat not only to the public order, but perhaps even more particularly to their own power. To their position, well, Jesus is is trouble. And so what is Jesus worth to them? Well, he's worth only the trouble that it takes to get rid of him. But in terms of actually responding to him, in terms of actually grappling with and taking account of what he says and what he's doing, he's not worth anything. 
and maybe there are even a couple of us this morning, that that is a decent picture of where we are in relation to Jesus. Not interested, holding him at arm's length, not wanting him to come and and make any claim on our lives, and so better to have nothing to do with him. Or a twist on it. Look at the end of the verses. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is a different take on the question of what's Jesus worth. Because in one sense, Jesus isn't worth anything anymore to Judas either. He's worth 30 pieces of silver, but that's only basically dead. Alive, Jesus is no longer worth anything to him. Judas is one of the 12 who had been chosen by Jesus to live with him, to follow him, to teach, to do things under his guidance. In a sense, to be an authorized representative and and to be sent out by Jesus. So he had spent a ton of time with him. He was trusted enough that he was in charge of money for the group. So it's not like they were all sitting there thinking, well, Judas is the one who's going to actually, you know, betray Jesus. I mean, he, he was at the heart of the group. And yet all of that, all of that good start, it didn't actually mean anything in the end. And the way that Judas ultimately answered the question of what's Jesus worth? Well, he... He wasn't worth anything because he betrayed him. And Judas stands. It's interesting. We're not told anything about his motives. The Bible is is strategically silent about why Judas did it. All we're presented with is the fact that he did. And it's a lesson that a good start doesn't guarantee a good finish. That to be able to say, well, in the past, Jesus was worth a lot to me. That doesn't determine how you're going to answer the question today or tomorrow of what Jesus is worth. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is that I think our temptation is to say it's an either-or kind of question. What's Jesus worth? Either he's worth nothing, like the chief priests and Judas, and thank God we're not like them. So Jesus is worth everything. It's either-or. Either you hate Jesus or you love him. Well, I don't hate him. Great. I'm okay. And yet this passage doesn't let us off the hook nearly that easily. Because there's actually two more figures still to think about. And the disciples in particular occupy a murky middle ground that I dare say probably is where a lot of us are in some ways. So this incident that Jesus is in this house in Bethany... And this woman, anonymous woman, comes and she uh, uh, breaks open this jar, this vase that has uh, perfume, expensive perfume in it, and she anoints him with it on his head, probably down his whole body, even to his feet. And that provokes an interesting response on the part of the disciples. So look in verse, is it verse 8? And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And so the disciples are setting up this sense of, look, there's the opportunity here to do real good with those resources. You know, there are real needs in this community, and that money could have been a lot better spent than this kind of ephemeral, throwaway gesture. 
And I think probably we quite, don't quite feel the weight of it because when we hear, we think very expensive, we think, you know, how much, is, how much is a normal jar of perfume? Well, how much would an expensive jar of perfume be? Okay, you know, well, yeah, that would have been nice. But interestingly, in John's account of this same story, somebody puts a price tag on it, and they say that was worth 300 denarii. Now, a denarius was equivalent to one day's wage. It's what you could expect to make for working for one day. So you think about the year, how many days there are in the year, and you take out the Sabbath days, because you couldn't work on those, and a few other kind of festival days, then you get about 300 days in the year. And so if this jar of perfume is worth 300 denarii, it's a way of saying it's worth a year's salary. And to put that even a little bit more in our terms, I did a little research. The median income a couple years ago in the UK was 20,000 pounds. So what you could expect to make in a year, medium, I guess half make more, half make less, so 20,000. So they're saying that was worth 20,000 pounds and it's just been wasted as perfume on you. Think about the good that could have been done with 20,000 pounds. The lives that could have been helped, the people who could have been fed, the people who could have been housed, all the kinds of misery and grief, Jesus, that we've seen around us for the last couple of years. And, and she just blew that money and you're okay with it. And if we're honest, there's a certain sympathy that we have to that objection. It does seem awfully wasteful. It does seem extravagant. I mean, 20,000 pounds, how many of us have, have ever spent 20,000 pounds at one go? Right? Now, if you've had a down payment on a house or a flat, probably more than that. But outside of that, maybe you were able to pay cash for a car. But 20,000 pounds for just one thing. And again, we're not talking something durable, something that's going to last. We're talking about something that happens and then it's done. I mean, some of us are thinking, I have never seen 20,000 pounds in all of my bank accounts put together, much less the idea that there's anybody that I can think of that I would want to spend 20,000 pounds on at one go. It does seem wasteful. It does seem kind of foolish. And, And so what is Jesus worth to the disciples? He's certainly worth something. They have been with him now for years. They've not had a place to stay. They've been itinerant. Back in chapter 19, Peter very pointedly said to Jesus, look, Jesus, what's in it for us? Because we've left everything behind. We've got nothing that we're holding on to. We're following you. What's in it for us? And so there's a sense that clearly Jesus is worth something, but just how much is he worth? We'll come back to that in a minute. Because I think we need to think about not just the disciples, but about the anonymous woman as well. The woman who was ready and happy to spend that kind of money on Jesus. Because it's not just enough to think about the question of who would you spend 20,000 pounds on. The question actually is, would you let somebody spend 20,000 pounds on you like that? Would you be happy for somebody to blow that kind of money that quickly on something for you that doesn't last? And my hunch is that if you say yes... Well, not to point fingers, but that's a a bit self-centered. You know, to say, yes, I am worth 20,000 pounds for something like that, that's kind of arrogant. It's amazingly self-centered to say, that's a good use of money. 
And yet that's what Jesus says. He says, it's a beautiful thing that she's done. And so why? Why does Jesus say that? Not just because Sunday school, we're here. Well, Jesus, he's the son of God. Of course, it's worth it, you know. But really, why does Jesus say that? Well, look at the verse. Look at verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus is thinking forward to his death in a couple of days. And in fact, the whole passage is orientated and pointing us and moving us toward thinking about Jesus, the one who's about to die on the cross. And so Jesus, well, actually, he is worth it because he's on his way to Calvary. He's on his way to a cross. He's on his way to rejection. Why? Because that's where he's going to deal with our sin. That's where he's going to deal with the sin that's been in the world since Adam and Eve fell, the sin that had wrecked the creation, the sin that had led to the, the oppression of the, of the Jewish people, the sin that is still so much here right now in this room today with us. And because Jesus is looking forward to his death on the cross, he says, actually, that is worth it. Because what she's doing is honoring and looking forward to that. Maybe even better than she knew. And actually, this passage is set up to help us see that in the first place. Because note the way that it's written. At the beginning of these first verses, we have the discussion by the chief priests. And then at the end, we have Judas. And in the middle, then, we have this story. And it's not the way that Matthew had to write it. Matthew could have put it in a different order. He could have had the story of the anointing. And then afterwards, he could have had both parts, both the chief priest's plans and Judas's betrayal. But actually... He's put this story right in the middle. So right before it, we read about Jesus and on his way to death. And right after it, we read about Jesus on his way to death. And so we're meant to see that the anointing happens precisely in the context that Jesus is the one who's going to die. Not by happenstance, not because things get out of control and, and boy, I didn't expect that to happen. Because verses 1 and 2 say, Jesus told them, look, in a couple of days, I'm going to be crucified. Jesus knows what's happening. He's forcing the issue by his actions and by his teachings precisely because he understands that that's his mission. His mission is to deal with sin. And that is why Jesus is worth everything. This passage says it's not just that Jesus is the Son of God, though he is. It's that Jesus is the one who deals with our our rebellion, our hatred, our enmity toward God, The fact that all of creation has been ruined and racked and devastated by sin. And Jesus is the one on whom all of that lands at Calvary. That is why Jesus is worth everything. So how do we look at our own lives and ask ourselves the question of what's Jesus worth to me? How do we measure something like that? How do we know that we're not perhaps understandably with the disciples saying, well, Jesus is worth something. Well, not that much, but he certainly is worth something. Like one of the ways to do that, there's a great question is, is the way you know something and its value is by what you're willing to give up in exchange for it. What you're prepared to give up in order to have that thing, well, that tells you how much you value it. 
And so if you want to ask the question of what's Jesus worth to me, the question to ask is, what am I giving up in exchange for Jesus? In order to have Jesus in my life, what is it that I'm giving up? And this is not a kind of a, a, you know, get your calculator out, quid pro quo, kind of, you know, figure out the, the numbers. It's a question for your heart as well as your life. So a, a story along these lines. When I first graduated from university and was kind of thinking, you know, what's next? What's the, what, kind of, where am I going in life? And there were a group of us that were sitting around making, at the time, some very serious plans. They didn't come to fruition, but we were making some plans, thinking about taking as a team, going down to South America and uh, planting a church down probably in Montevideo, Uruguay. And it was a mix of us. There were some of us who had just graduated, some who were further along. A couple of the guys were at theological college at the time, getting ready to finish up. And there was a real sense of, of excitement and, and a real delight at the prospect of, of getting to work together with some of the people you love and care most about in, in life and want to share your life with to go do something that big and that important to start a church in a place vastly unchurched. And as we were discussing this, I made the kind of I made this, the comment half kiddingly, half seriously. I said, look, um, I'm looking around and I'm realizing that we're going to go do this in a couple of years. I'm going to be the only single guy on the team. Everybody else is married and I'm going to go and I'm going to be stuck with all you married families for however many years this takes. Then I'm going to come back and I'm going to be the awkward missionary, ex-missionary single guy back in the States. I was like, I'm not having that. I'm not going until I can get married. And half kidding, half serious. And one of the guys good friend said to me, well, Charles, what is this worth to you? What are you willing to give up? If this is what God would have for you to do, what are you willing to give up in order to be a part of it? Well, that's a good question. And it may be that, that some aspects of that question actually are pertinent for us this morning. We'll take it in, take it in two parts. So first, it may be the question of marriage for some of us. And I I want to tread lightly here. You know, I'm married. I've got four kids. So the last thing you want to hear is somebody who's happily married talking to people who are single about their state. And yet the question is, is still there. That perhaps you're in a place in life, you're following the Lord Jesus, you want to live for him, and at the same time, understandably, rightly, you, you'd like to be married. You're single. And right now, those two things don't seem to be going the same direction. And you're looking around saying, where is that somebody that I could share my life with who's going with me toward the cross, who's following Jesus? And you can't find them. And so the question is, well, what do you do about that? Do you say, well, you know what? I know so-and-so, and, you know, they've got their head on straight. And no, they're not as serious in their faith or in faith at all. But, but you know what? That's still, you know, it's a good thing to want to be married. And it is a good thing, and yet it's a question of, what's Jesus worth? And it may be that it's, it's a hard question to answer. Or maybe it's not the, the marriage bit, but maybe it's the mission bit. Maybe it's the question of ministry, and, and what does it look like for you, where God has you in life, to be sold out for Jesus and his mission? Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. And he calls us to be a part of that as we follow him. So what does that look like for you? What does it look like to give up in exchange for being able to follow Jesus? 
And perhaps some are thinking about, and I'm going to say this, I can say this because I don't know anybody's individual circumstances, so I can throw grenades like this, and you can't think I'm talking specifically to you, and I know that I'm talking to you. Um, and I haven't talked to Chris about this, but, but think about the church plant. And my understanding is one of the requirements of it is, is to actually move on to the estate to be a part of it. And I recognize for some that's a, that's a big ask. You're well settled in where you live. The kids are in a good school. And to uproot to another place, and I don't know, maybe the schools aren't as good there. Maybe the resale value of your place is going to be a lot worse if you move there. But if that's what God has for you, what are you willing to give up? How much is Jesus worth to you? And this is not a question of rules or of law. It may be that, that it, before God, rightly, that's not what he has for you. So this is not about giving you some kind of little tick list, okay? And if you've done that, well, then, yes, Jesus is worth everything to you. Well done. You can pat yourself on the back. This is about asking ourselves a question as a thermometer, uh, as kind of a gauge on our life and saying, yeah, what am I holding on to? And do I value it more than I value Jesus? What is he actually worth to me when push comes to shove? And that's why something like going through the Gospel of Matthew is so important because we have to fill our hearts and our thoughts with who Jesus is. If we're going to be convinced that Jesus is worth it, then we've got to know Jesus. And hopefully through the weeks, you've been able to see Jesus as the son of David, the king who has come, the son of Abraham, the one through whom all of the blessings are going to come, the Messiah, not like they were expecting, but like they actually needed. To see that Jesus as the teacher, as the guide, as the friend, as the savior, to see that Jesus is to recognize Yes, he is worth everything. Let's pray. God, our, our hearts are faltering. They're mixed. We value Jesus, and yet we know in our hearts that we don't value him as we should. So we pray, would you convict us, not in a way that simply puts us into the pile, but in a way that points us back to him to see how wonderful and great and generous he is to us. To be reminded and to see afresh the treasure that he is to give his life for us that we might know you. And we pray that you would fill our hearts and our thoughts and our actions with that vision of how much Jesus really is worth and that that would be the impetus for us to follow him on the way to Calvary. Amen.